0: Welcome to this episode of The PharmExec Podcast. I'm Fran Polaro, Senior Editor of Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The PharmExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, we present the podcast companion to our roundtable feature exploring the transformative power of AI in pharmaceutical marketing six months after the arrival of ChatGPT. Charlene Jenner, Vice President of Engagement Strategy at Evelson Taylor and Professor of AI and Personalization for Digital Marketers at Southern Methodist University, leads a panel of five industry leaders, which takes you, the listener, through an exploration of present-day applications, as well as its associated ethical and regulatory challenges. Additionally, the participants shed light on the immediate impact and future potential of AI, offering a fleeting glimpse into the present and a speculative look at how these rapidly evolving technologies reshape pharmaceutical marketing in the years to come. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with the discussion.
1: ZS is giving voice to patient centricity. Move beyond the buzzword to discover how to bring patient-led business models to life. Join me, Victoria Summers, principal in ZS's Patient Health and Equity Accelerator, as I discuss effective strategies, best practices, and real-world examples with ZS experts from across the industry. Bonus content features patients in their own words, sharing their personal health journeys. You can find us at zs.com. Look for the Patient Centricity
0: Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to our moderated podcast from Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. We're hosting a roundtable today to explore the dynamic intersection of artificial intelligence and pharma commercialization, advertising, and marketing. One of the things that's really important as we move forward into the next generation of pharmaceutical marketing is understanding the changes that are coming with this new technology. With me today... We have a distinguished panel that's going to talk through a lot of the different changes that we're going to see in pharmaceutical marketing along with AI. We have Farouk Kapan, CEO of Eversana In Touch. We have Anurag Banerjee with Quilt AI. Stephen Onokoro from PharmaForce IQ, and Jeff Head, the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson and Johnson. Today, we're going to look forward to hearing from our participants on where they feel the industry is headed. So let's get started by having everyone introduce themselves and a little bit about the work that they do. Let's start with you, Farouk.
2: Thanks, Charlene. I am CEO of Eversana InTouch Agency, and also I'm also Chief Innovation Officer of Eversana team. And I've been working with the AI actually last several years, but obviously the last five, six months been crazy. So I'm excited to be here. I'll pass it to Steve, actually. Steve?
3: Thanks, Farouk. Hi, I'm on the founding team of PharmaForce IQ, and my day-to-day, I lead a strategy and operations group here. For those of you that are not familiar, PharmaForce IQ is an AI-driven, omnichannel marketing platform that we provide to the pharmaceutical industry. So we spend a lot of our time thinking about the use of AI in marketing.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Jeff Head. I'm Vice President of Commercial Data Science and our data and insights product group at Johnson Pharmaceuticals, part of Johnson & Johnson. We use data science, machine learning, AI uh, across our commercial business, and my team has responsibility for the North America market. We've been doing this for 10 years. I've been with J&J for about nine and a half, but certainly there are
5: you know, new, new and exciting things that have that have emerged that I'm excited to talk about today. I'm going to find it hard to go after the three of them. My name is Anurag Banerjee, and I work at a company called Quilt AI. Qult AI is a five-year-old firm. We do three things. We have a diagnostic AI product that does a lot of consumer research using stuff on the internet. We have a generative AI product, which now is, of course, extremely hot. And we have a predictive AI product, which looks at what content might resonate better. And my favorite joke on AI is it will not take over the world because Wi-Fi doesn't work most of the time. So I'm going to be the humor component on this podcast.
1: Fantastic. And I'm Charlene Jenner, the Vice President of Engagement Strategy at the advertising agency Abelson-Taylor. I am also a professor at Southern Methodist University for Artificial Intelligence and Personalization for Digital Marketers. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, we are six months into the latest iteration of artificial intelligence evolution in pharma, and our entire world is abuzz with this. Now let's skip some theory and let's immediately talk about what are the concrete practices that all of us are going through. How are you presently harnessing the power of AI to bolster your own marketing technology strategies? Let's start with you, Farouk. What are some things that you guys are doing over at Eversana?
2: Absolutely. I love it, actually. The excitement is for real, but uh, actually practicality is more important. Number one, we are in a pharmaceutical industry, which is highly regulated. And the patient data, HCP data is very important. The first thing we try to do as an organization, try to help our clients what to do, what not to do initially, because any new technology, usually farmers always blame that we are always laggard behind the things. But those of you been enough around the block know that that's actually not true, but there are very good reasons to do it. We actually working with an outside legal firm to make sure that what we do everything right now for our clients are completely regulated correctly and as well as legally correct. So That was what we did to look at our processes. But of course, we empowered our own team departments, creative teams, strategy. What can you guys use this technology? We educated them and they come up with very concrete example. And I think my simplest example right now already in the market is a video production. Instead of a video, as you guys know, you gotta write a script, you gotta get the script approved. You gotta shoot them with experts and then it takes for a long time. And, And now actually using AI, generative AI, we are able to get the script done At the same time, be able to change the video because we are using near real people online and video production. So we can actually do those in a couple of days rather than if it takes months for us to get to Remedrix. So that's just one concrete example. And I can give you many more, but I will let my colleagues to kind of pitch in as well, too.
1: Awesome. That's so interesting. Uh, Jeff, tell us a little about what's going on at Janssen Pharmaceuticals and J&J.
4: In terms of AI and marketing, yeah, we've been on our journey for some time thinking particularly about how we use it for our omni-channel efforts. In the past, we've used machine learning to improve how we identify our healthcare providers and other institutional customers, as well as find patients along their journey that would benefit most from our products. That's allowed us to really rethink our strategy of when, where, how we deploy our field forces, as well as our marketing efforts across digital channels. Now, when we think about generative AI, there's two areas that come to mind for me. We've built many custom tools that require a lot of software and generative AI code tools have a potential to greatly speed up our development cycles, testing, unit testing, et cetera. And so we're experimenting with how we can augment our development teams to enable them to move more quickly, be really agile and adjust to market conditions. I think that's a tremendous application of this technology. The second area is deriving insights of our rich textual data that can be publicly available data sets, medical literature, or treasure troves of market research that we all have in our data stores in pharmaceutical companies. So it's a mix of driving new and different insights of what we already have. But what I love about foundation models in particular is the ability to combine internal and external data in unique ways that we've not been able to do before which really takes advantage of the power of large-scale models.
1: I love how you were weaving generative AI through multiple departments within your organization and really harnessing how it can be a time saver, but then also creating opportunities where you're able to run multiple tests or do a lot of things. That's amazing the way that you guys are starting to pull it all together. Steve, tell us a little bit about what's going on on your side with AI.
3: Pretty interesting story. So when we started Pharma for Cycle, the original idea was to integrate across the marketing ecosystem in pharma and build these integrations and orchestrate across those integrations. So integrate across sales platforms, as well as non-personal promotional platforms. And when we set out to do that, we quickly realized that you cannot orchestrate across those platforms without some sort of machine learning tools. We didn't set out to do that. We wanted to use a rules-based approach, a software-based approach, but we quickly realized that we were taking the wrong approach. So we pivoted and we dove deep into becoming a truly machine learning AI company in a sense that we had to do two things, essentially. First is, in order to be able to orchestrate intelligently across the ecosystem, first you need to understand your customers very well, right? what are your customer's preferences when it comes to HCP marketing? And that, re- and that requires really building HCP profiles for each individual HCPs that are in your ecosystem and truly understanding them. So we invested in, in over 20 AI models to actually do this. right? So characterizing HCP preferences across many different types of features. And that really set us, set us really rolling as a AI marketing company. The second aspect of what we did was, okay, now that we sort of know what their preference is, how do we orchestrate across these ecosystems in a very intelligent way, right? We don't need to set up rules in a system that says, hey, this physician needs to get this message. We can just ask the AI to do that for us based on their preferences, based on some other business rules that we apply to the AI, right? So that's essentially how we're using that orchestration piece. The first is We orchestrate with AI, and the second is we actually really understand what our customers prefer and what are most likely to resonate with our customers.
1: What's really great about your process, Steve, is the fact that you guys are still using some solid marketing techniques that we've used and kind of merge that into AI, where it's looking at AI, having them do those great pull those ideas together, get everything pulled together, but then also testing and then going back and saying, do I need to refine this process? So it's amazing that you are able to create kind of a hybrid. Between the way that we used to operate before AI and then inserting AI into the process, but making it so that you guys can be faster, test more opportunities, and being able to really get some information out. That's amazing. All right, Anurag, clear us out here. What are the ways that you guys are using AI on your side of the fence?
5: It's so, I mean, I, I always think of life in a, a sort of bi directional way. One is it's got to be accretive to the PL, so it's got to make us money or make my clients money, or it's gonna save us time or efficiency, and I know some of my colleagues talked about both of these in some shape or form. We clearly see that in understanding consumers or patients or HCPs, the ability of large-scale machine learning tools to do that is brilliant. It's very, very fast. You don't need focus groups as much, or at all is my opinion. You don't need surveys, or you need less of them, or even if you have survey data, you can analyze that really rapidly and quickly. So there is a speed to market that a pharma company can have that wasn't true, you know, even you know, twelve months or eighteen months ago. And even something like GPT has made massive strides with each model released, and the other models are great. So we see that as you know, as as huge in terms of being able to respond to consumers quickly. The other thing that we see is in terms of content iteration. I think Steve talked about this. Is because now you can generate so many different pieces of content. And I know we have MLR approval and all to think through, but the truth is to win on the internet with HCPs or with patients, you have to have multiple personalized pieces of content. And AI allows you to do that not amazingly today, but much better than it could even three months ago. So we see true personalization at scale being possible finally. It's been it's been theoretical for a long time. And now I think the time's here.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's been theoretical for such a long time. So to see it in practice is really exciting. One of the things that you brought up that I thought was really interesting is the way that you're saying from a testing perspective, we might not need to have as many focus groups or not have to have as run as many tests from an audience perspective, which is really exciting because what we're doing with machine learning and AI is really grasping the power of being able to look at all the information at our fingertips and then kind of bending it to our will as marketing people. So that's pretty exciting. Awesome. It's so great to see how everyone is using AI even though everyone thinks it's kind of new, it's been in the marketplace for quite a period of time and being able to now benefit from it in a more robust and front-forward way is something that we're going to start to see in in the future quite a bit. Now, We talk a lot about the excitement and buzz around things like ChatGPT and really how AI is very transformative in tactical processes for marketing. Over 2,000 new tools have been introduced in the last year when you start to think about AI. Let's talk a little about an intellectual property and content creation, because when all of the AI tools came into the marketplace, all of the content that's on the internet became the unwitting trainers of generative AI. They were consuming so much data and so much content. And at this point, there isn't a lot of compensation to all the articles that they've read or all the different journals that they've looked at or all the different ways that they are absorbing that information to become these powerful AI platforms. Farouk, what do you think is going to be the cost to some organizations and to also content creators as artificial intelligence really starts to kind of absorb our market?
2: it's unfortunate actually it's an important topic right copyright and the value of the creators and it's going to change it's going to evolve there is no stopping at this point and there are two sides of the people one is we're op- optimists like me it's going to help us get our jobs better we're going to be more efficient we're going to do better things faster at the same time that some of the people will be unlucky jobs that might be completely gone in a few years and it's going to impact the wealth and the, you know we we're talking about universal you know different ways to how we can fix this. Or told Armageddon, maybe the AI is going to take over the whole world and, you know, they're going to eliminate the humanity. I mean, that extreme things. I don't think we can discount any of this at the same time. We really be very practical right now. I think there's a big copyright issue right now that, like, if you don't get permission and go train the set, the same thing happens with our clients too, right? Each company have their own proprietary data information. If you happen to share it with the public, what happens? Obviously, we want to protect our copyright knowledge. It is a difficult topic. I think here's what I'm going to say, though. Any profession, anybody's expert in an area, AI is not going to replace you. But I'll just say people using AI will replace you if you don't use it. Actually, uh, maybe I did a complete. That. That's to me the common goal. I think I really encourage people to be careful, but don't stay on the sideline at this point. For the copyright issues that it will evolve itself, so we're going to find We need some regulation, definitely. We need to get some permission. We need to do make sure that we do things right. But if you're a good writer, medical writer, if you're a good expertise in any topic, it won't replace you because AI still needs your feedback, human feedback. That We are not 100% correct efficiency level, but AI will definitely help us to do our jobs better. I'll take that approach then, completely trying to stop to say, no, we want the uh, old style drawings. I mean, we cannot ignore the technology evolving. And so to me, it is important that we address regulatory or legal framework for these people creating content. But we'll go, we are going to evolve. We're not going to start from doing a sketches from the beginning. AI can help us get things started much faster than where we what we do today.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more, Farouk. There's a lot of messiness right now from an AI perspective where everything is getting created and now we're trying to figure out you know, who has ownership of certain things. But it is very important. Like you said, there's always that authentic intelligence that humans bring to the table. Steve, what are your thoughts in terms of how the intellectual property and content creation might be affected by AI and machine learning in the future?
3: So, I mean, I want to think about it from the perspective of the human creator, as well as all of the content that has already been created. And I think we should think about AI as a customer of intellectual property, just like a human can be a customer of intellectual property. So then the question is, Is AI going to be a paying customer in terms of you have a copyright on your platform and you need to be paid for your content? Or is AI going to be a non-paying customer, which is probably what's happening a lot right now, right? And it sort of takes me back to to the 90s when Napster came through and really disrupted the music industry. You could download music for free online, but that song intellectual property. And what we have now is the industry has sort of transformed into you know, the Spotify's, the Pandora's, the Apple's of the world, where you can still download and stream music, but you have to pay for it using some method that wasn't available you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago. So I see us sort of moving slowly into that format. Also, AI will always be able to consume information that you don't want it to consume in a lot of instances. But the question like Faruk is saying is, how do we frame it properly where Who owns the IP is getting credit for it in terms of payments, in terms of, you know, reimbursements and things like that. Because once your content is online and there are models online, they will pick it up and they will consume it and they will get trained on it, right? So we need to build frameworks around how do we compensate the content owners, because that's really what's key. And I think we're going to get there.
1: Wow, such good points. Now, Farouk, you touched on a little bit around legislation. So I want to talk a little bit about that. There's so much legislation and regulation coming into artificial intelligence. I tell my team all the time, it's like the Wild West. Like there aren't a lot of rules right now. So everything is like westward expansion. We're all making a lot of, you know, a lot of new tools are coming into play. And there's not a lot of thought given to the legislation, and the regulation around the information, who owns the information. And from a national and a global scale, we're starting to see some legislation start to take shape, especially in the European Union who of course, when they introduced GDPR, were kind of on the forefront of that from a privacy perspective and their citizens concern. For about 28 days, the entire country of Italy had actually banned chat GPT because they weren't understanding where the information was going for the privacy of their citizens. So I want to throw this question to you, Anurag. What do you think are going to be the most significant repercussions or the most significant changes from a legislative and regulatory perspective for artificial intelligence?
5: That's a tough question. I'm going to first like gently disagree with Farouk and Steve just to make this a little controversial because otherwise, like, you know, everyone gets along so well. So I think the whole construct of content creators on the web, right? If I wrote a blog and that got went into GPT, GPT should now pay me. I find that logic flawed only because, you know, I was taught by somebody, I learned art from somebody else, and I'm making a living. I'm not compensating people down the pipe, right? Yes, I pay taxes and I buy certain things, but it's not a customer model, it's said. So I realized, you know, I think there is, so that, that's one piece. The second piece, is I think, as we see with many larger models, over a period of time, they're extremely general. So I, I like, you know, my colleagues here have probably done thousands of prompts, right? How to play with stuff and API access it. But truly what really works well is probably what works in Jeff's world is small LLMs on tight data. So like the Bloomberg LLM, or some of the Alums that have been released are fascinating on tight data, where you know, it's your in-house data managed and interrogated well. So now that I've sort of framed that in my mind, I think in the legislation piece, couple of things on that, I think legislation, sadly, is almost always retroactive. I find it challenging that, you know, it's like the tobacco industry saying regulate us is how I think about us in the AI industry saying regulate us, which is a little duplicitous, but I think the regulation that should come is to understand four key stakeholders, right? So to Steve's point, there are content creators and all of us create content in some shape or form. And what should the T's and C's of the content platforms be? And what should they be allowed to give? So what can an Instagram give that goes into GPT or not, right? What can a Twitter give or not? So that should be one stakeholder. The second stakeholder is platforms. What are the platforms going to do with this amount of content and what can they or can they not build? And what is the monetization scheme back there? The third is the buyers, who are the buyers of the of the product. So let's say I am buying an Instagram-based LLM. What does that that mean? And the fourth stakeholder is a privacy, you know, sort of privacy screen around it. My theory is that legislation is going to come in a very draconian way and target small use cases. So being GDPR compliant truly means, in some ways, a very defined thing, and there are ways to manage and optimize to that. And I think if we follow the GDPR model, it's actually an easy model to execute against. And we don't have it in the US, but in Europe, uh, I'm sure Jansen, you know, Steve just nodding. But when you when you look at it, it's an easy model to understand. So I think I wouldn't worry about the legislation. I wouldn't jump as the industry to say, hey, legislate us, because that again sounds unethical and incorrect. I think it should be at an arm's distance. And I don't think GPT or any of these platforms is anywhere close to AGI, right? So that's my original point. Anyway, I'm gonna pause there, but. I'm not worried about legislation. It should happen, keeping those four stakeholders in, in view. That
1: is so much optimism on Iraq in terms of not being so concerned around the legislation. But I'm sure it's a measured, a, a little bit of measured concern around that. or Steve, I know that on Iraq, he kind of disagree with you guys. Do you have a, a, any any thoughts on that? I want to make sure Jeff maybe has
2: something to say, but yeah. definitely I have lots to say about, but I appreciate it. I feel like we are now network working on a big controversial topic, but I don't disagree with either parties. But Jeff, anything you wanna add first?
4: As Farouk highlighted earlier, uh, it is indeed a highly regulated industry. So in the context of global legislation that governs a dynamically involving capability like generative AI, a thoughtful approach, I think is essential to ensuring quality and compliance remain inherent in the system and therefore in our decision-making. So an example of this dynamism in large language models and foundation models, I think there are two camps. There are folks that will argue that bigger is better and bigger will win. And that's where one could quickly run into questions such as, what was it trained on? And are we really being compliant, fair, and ethical? And that's difficult to answer. There's the other side where smaller, more focused models are catching up very quickly and probably will soon meet and potentially even surpass functionality on a use case level that we'll aim to achieve in our industry or in any business. There's also a push in the open source community right now to be declarative on what a model is trained on, getting appropriate permissions using underlying data sets for clearly specified purposes, and having clear traceability of the model inputs and outputs. These are important conversations about integrity, providence, and quality, and there's not one single answer to the question and, and issues raised. I think we continue to look forward to having a rich set of options to consider, depending on what the use case will be.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think from my perspective, I, I do agree. I, we're actually not in disagreement with so Anurag. Right? It's it's just that, you know, if you have content out there to be consumed, they're finally consumed. But if you expressly want to be compensated for your content, then the question is, how do we bring that into frame in the context of AI? Of, And and that's really where where the thought is coming from, because there is is potential for it to be used without your permission. And we really need to be careful in terms of thinking through um, those aspects. But yeah, I totally agree.
1: What do you think are the biggest challenges, Steve, as we start to look at, just like Jeff was talking about, ethical concerns, privacy, data security? What do you think are the biggest challenges that as marketers we should be aware of and kind of tiptoe around a little bit as the legislation starts to come into play?
3: Yeah, so I think that sort of pharma, I think a comment was made earlier that you know pharma always sort of lags behind when it comes to this type of investments. And that's really because of the regulations that we have and the use of patient data and privacy and all of that aspect. And that's still also the case in this space where I think that we are trading carefully when it comes to you know, the use of patient data, the use of identified, identifying good data and putting those into our models and things like that. So I think that as things become a little more competitive, the challenge is, do we police ourselves as an industry to make sure that you want to get a little edge on identifying that particular patient who has that really, really rare disease, but how exactly did you do it, right? And it may take a while for regulators to really catch up to that in some instances, but as an industry, we really need to make sure we're policing what we're doing in that aspect in terms of privacy, use of data, it's very it's something that we think about a lot as a company because on the backside of your platforms, you need to protect your risk and your compliances, regardless of what the current regulations are. And so we're always thinking about that as a, as a company, as an industry.
1: Nice. Farouk, you and I are both in the same kind of industry here as an ad from the medical marketing and the advertising piece. What do you see as some of the things that we should be looking at? And we should be concerned about and what we should be a little bit careful at in terms of medical marketing. What, what are you telling your teams?
2: Definitely. I feel like a dinosaur 30 plus years in pharmaceutical on the client side and the agency side. Obviously, I've been through arguing about the font size on a website, font type that has been sued by this is our fund. So I'm like, I've been to examples that are so little tiny stock for being used or not. We want to protect our customers. Definitely, we don't want any of our clients ever like being sued or, you know, gun after. So since knowing those things, I know that we have to be careful. Number one is right now, clients are two things that are important. One is privacy and the data security, meaning that we have some clients that say, do not use my data in any shape of a chat GPT or environment, which they have rightfully to do so. Or we have a policy ourselves. Do not ever use the final product of a chat GPT created content or image. Only used for right now uh, for ideation, everything, but never ever submit anything to client. It's current form. Once this has been clarified in the future with our clients and ourselves, we'll go to the next step. Secondly, what I'm excited actually about mostly is when we say content, customization, personalization. What is the number one process comes to all of our minds from the marketing standpoint? Medical regulatory like, full process, right? Med rec and regulatory. That's the, the hardest part to solve. But I I'm super excited because we are right now working on a project be able to solve that pipeline problem. How do we make our regulatory approval people much more efficient by giving all the information? For instance, first a discussion was about ChatGPT or policy was it doesn't have the right references. It was making things up. Obviously, it's super dangerous in pharmaceutical marketing. But now, being able to create private references and being able to create our own client's environment, we can actually solve that problem. So we have the right references, white checks, Make sure we are saying is the copy and claims are correct. So that's kind of a help us. So this is a very fast-moving plane. Actually, it's not a train in my mind. That is every day you guys are probably hearing, like, oh, here's one more thing, new thing. Literally, if you don't watch for a week, you're behind almost uh, four months, in my mind. So I think what is most important enough again in a regular environment, you got to be protect the patient and ACP data. We got to protect our clients' data, but I'm highly suggesting nothing, these are not negative, really. Like we gotta be careful. Sometimes you make the first as an innovator, make a one mistake, and everybody else pick on this thing and you suddenly everybody gets scared. I had seen this in social media, mobile websites before. To me, we have to be careful. Like we, we still have to make sure, make minimize the mistake, minimize the risk, and then we'll adopt this thing actually in a better, faster way.
1: That was wonderfully said. We're similar at Abelson Taylor, where we're looking at what are the ways that we can use generative AI and chat GPT and machine learning in ways that we can expand and increase our our efficiency from an HCP and a client and and a patient perspective, but then also taking a focus on where are we, you know, wanting to make sure that we're staying in the forefront of technology. How do we make sure we're bringing the right things to our clients at the right time in a very fast motion to be able to stay ahead of the technology? This is a great panel. I got one last question for you guys before we let you go. Let's talk about the future. In the future world, let's think five or 10 years into the future, where do you expect to see artificial intelligence really making a big change in pharmacy marketing? Let's start with you, Jeff. What are you thinking if you look in your crystal ball?
4: I would say in two key ways, applied change and really transformative change and changing things at scale have longer timelines than generally assumed. So when you think about bigger companies adopting internet access or using cloud platforms instead of home servers, that took years. The hype cycle will reach a saturation point, and then we'll get to actual tactical execution. So I'd say five years from now on the marketing side, we should see increased speed and agility. There'll be faster paths to producing new content, new campaigns that are very relevant at the individual level, that can then be turned around very quickly as marketing conditions change and external events happen or exciting things happen within a company's own pipeline. To Ana comment earlier about finding patients with rare diseases, if you look at where the industry's headed, there's a ton of focus on personalized medicine and also rare indications. I think that does marry very well with this technology. When you think of how we can find those patients in order to both initially study the disease in the clinic, but then also once we get a treatment approved, help find other patients earlier in their disease progression so we can help them on their health journey. That's where we may see a lot of generative methods in production systems so we can help those patients
5: at those times.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Anurag, where do you think we're going in five or 10 years?
5: I was speaking to somebody the other day and I was 19 years old and my, my grandfather passed away, died of lung cancer. And I remember Googling tobaccos, chain smokers, Googling it and- Looking at research papers online in, as a sophomore in university, and the information access availability to a caregiver, right, or a patient, was inadequate or n- not easy. My thirteen-year-old daughter had her tonsils taken out last summer, and I was trying to explain to her about you know what the procedure is like, what's going to happen. You get a lot of ice cream, and her point was that I got this. I saw two TikTok videos, and I know was going to happen. And so, the information availability to a patient is much better. So if I had to wish, and I don't know if it'll be happening in five years, 10 years to just point, things do take much longer than you expect once the hype cycle dies. And as as practitioners, all of us, four or five of us, we we know that to be true. I'd love for an an environment where personalized information to me about my health and my conditions were available. And as I was an empowered patient, as a civilian, get that information, you know, in, in an easy to access form. So... There are websites I can go to, and other, it, it just isn't magical. So if you could do generative AI and personalized AI into Charlene and what what your health means for you, and this many attempts have happened in that arc, but I would wish for that to be true. I don't know if that'll happen in five years, but I think that that arc is the right arc for AI to be used on. Like Anybody can write copy. like That's such a waste of time.
1: Interesting take on that. Steve, you're looking into your crystal ball. What do you see in five or 10 years?
3: So from our perspective of helping pharmaceutical marketers um, in HCP marketing, what we do see is AI becoming more and more part of the transactional aspects of what pharmaceutical marketers do. And think of things like segmentation, design, you know. It's going to be more and more about, okay, we're not just looking at huge segments of positions, but we're looking at, you know, micro segments of positions and really um, tailoring our messages specifically to those types of positions, right? And that's where, you know, things like modular contents, Farouk was talking about, also comes into and really streamlining the MLR and too. processes. So I look at it more from a transactional level. It might not be a big change, but it's also getting us faster and more personalized into what we want to do. So really at a transactional level, AI is really spinning things up for us and it's really helping us be more personalized, right? So whatever that turns out in terms of the bigger picture is yet to be seen, I agree. But I think that's definitely what we do see happening and going to be increasing is that transactional level utilization of
2: AI for sure.
1: Amazing. Well, Farouk, it's down to just you and I. Why don't you tell us what you think is going to happen in the next five to 10 years?
2: No, This is, everybody's right on target. However, I just want to say one thing. This is much accelerated than internet or the mobile that social we've seen before. I'll tell you, like I, I think five to 10 years, the way we live, the way we work is going to be different, much different than today. I'll give you one example. Do we need websites or will we have websites or we each want to say our personalized AI or we education-wise, medical-wise, you'll have real expertise available to us individual level. And really, it's going to be more about influencing those AI models that Jeff and Anurag mentioned than building websites or content. It's going to be more about how do we, you know, influence those vertical models or you know general AI models. It's going to be important, and also like uh, we need to be all more specialized. Probably the job's going to be more specialized in order to be able to compete with AI in, in general terms. And it's it's exciting. At the same time, it's kind of scary too. Actually, that things can really go the wrong way too in five to 10 years, but I'll stay in the optimistic way that if we really put our right minds, right hearts together, I mean, good people need to work on this because bad people are already working to how to use this against probably good people already. So I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm cautiously optimistic that actually it's going to improve our quality of life. Potentially, it's going to be a different environment, like the mobile phone, as you can see right now, kids without, I mean, nobody moves without their cell phone in their hands and this is another like this a tool coming very soon that we'll have an ai personalized ai educator trainer doctor legal expertise all this thing will be available to us in a much different way
1: yeah oh, that is amazing you and i are thinking very similar thoughts i take a little bit of a more science fiction approach to it i feel like within 5 or 10 years because we're moving so quickly with technology i think we're going to get into a place where wearables augmented reality virtual reality. I think we're going to see a huge uptick in wearable technology that's going to help people understand their health in a new way. I think it's going to be able to give us a new perspective from healthcare providers and people who are in the industry to be able to understand population health on a more global and robust scale. I think one thing that I wish we would have had during the COVID pandemic is the ability to have artificial intelligence and generative AI to be able to absorb that data so much faster and give us a lot more information from a population health perspective. Just like you were saying, Fruke, everyone is attached to their phones. So if there is a way for us to have augmented reality or virtual reality from a health perspective, Being able to meet that patient exactly where they are, to be able to give them information around what are critical components to their healthcare, what are different ways to manage symptoms, what are different ways to have early detection. I think that's going to be something we'll see within the next five to 10 years. I also think we're going to see some healthcare providers really embracing this technology a lot more. I think we'll start to see a lot more generative AI in the research areas. We're going to see a lot of it around how they can communicate with their patients in a more free and open way. We're seeing Zoom technology now where there's telemedicine, but in the future, will we start seeing things that are more augmented reality where your healthcare provider is meeting you and in a, in a world that maybe you hadn't thought of before. So I really see it as more of the merging of how gaming has really moved into all world Kind of technology. I think we're going to see medicine and pharma moving into that same way that gaming has infiltrated our lives, and and people are starting to create those communities. But you know what? We could talk for days on where AI is going, but I really want to thank Anurag, Steve, Jeff, and Farouk for their time today. I think this was an amazing panel. I think we got into a couple of really great topics that are going to start to become something in the next year or two. Thank you guys so much for your time. And I hope everyone enjoyed our moderated panel on artificial intelligence and the pharma marketing industry. Thank you guys so much.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: Thank you, you, Charlie. Thank you all. That was fun. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Farm Exec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter, at pharmaexec, on Instagram at farm executive and on YouTube, Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of Farm Exec, its parent company, or advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com backslash advertise. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.